Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Matthew C. McWilliams. He is the Global Political Opinion Lead of the Foundation International Communications Hub, Comms Hub, a newly established organization located in Spain and dedicated to the furtherance of civil society and democracy around the world. He's a political science he, scientist. He earned his PhD in political science from the University of Massachusetts, where he was a visiting research associate. And through surveys and focus groups, he has examined the roots of democratic deconsolidation and rise of illiberal politics in the United States and countries across Europe and Asia. And we will be getting into this. He has conducted quantitative and qualitative research exploring this question in over 25 countries, including many in Europe and in the United States. He is also the author of On Fascism, 12 Lessons from American History. Welcome, Matthew, to America and Beyond. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to meet you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. As am I. And why don't we start just maybe on the methodological plane, just to kind of familiarize, get, sort of set set some parameters for sure. what we are talking about. In the appendix, the first appendix of on fascism, uh, it's called measuring commitment to democracy, emphasis on measuring. So what what's what's that about basically? I love that you read the appendices first. <laughs> You're not, after not my first, heart here, but I came back to them. <laughs> well, I I thought it was very important to include it, though my editor wasn't so sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and, what do editors know? Yeah, I know they're just editors. They're just um, editors. How do we, or how does political science, or how do people measure authoritarianism? It can't be a question that is, are you an authoritarian or not? Because you're not going. It's a tautological question. So yeah. There have been questions that have been developed over time, and actually, it uh, in terms of authoritarianism, it started with the Frankfurt School in Germany, 
in the late 1920s into the early 30s, where they were measuring uh, what came to be known as authoritarianism. Yeah, and, and Eric Fromm came from that, right, as a, importantly it, because of the book that he went on to write. Yeah, the book uh, Escape from Freedom, which was the really the seminal work on political psychology. And Eric Fromm came out of that. And actually, yeah. it was his study uh, that uh, formed the grist for a lot of that. So out of this has come over time and developed over time uh, four key questions uh, that we use to uh, determine if someone uh, is an, uh, more likely to be an authoritarian or not. And that is actually is expanded now, finally, to eight questions. There was just some excellent work done. So and what's these an questions, yeah, what's an example? Just We don't have to do them all, but what's a good example of a, of, of a question? Well, it, they have nothing to do with what you would consider to be authoritarianism. They're child-rearing questions. So okay. a good example is which of these qualities is more important for a child to have? This is what's asked on a, a poll. Respect mm -hmm. for elders or independence. Respect for elders would be the authoritarian answer. Yeah, independence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Woohoo! Which uh, is more important for a child to have? Self reliance or obedience? Obedience would be the authoritarian answer. And the thing that's so great about these questions, there are now eight of them. You can use the short. Uh, uh, a list of four. Yeah, I took the I took the test, and well, where'd you come out? Uh, well, first you, as did you. You write uh, that not everyone scores a one on the scale behaves like an authoritarian. By the right. way, I we're talking about you scored a point zero five. So which question did you kind of go the other way on? Uh, I am, uh, and it depends. Uh, when I first took it, I was point seven five, but now. Respect for elders and the hard one, which these qualities is more important being considered for being well-behaved. Uh, I chose well-behaved because I had kids at that point. They were driving me nuts. Yeah. Uh, so well, then I did the same thing. So there you go. I found that a go. difficult t toggle actually, yeah. because I, you know, I know their preferences. It's not as if either one is, you know, obviously bad. Yeah, and, and what's key about this is when you put this onto a scale and you put, you know, a thousand people and you take the people who come out as authoritarian ones or leaning towards authoritarianism, 0.75, and you say they should exhibit certain behaviors, like they should like strong leaders, uh, they should... Uh, uh, be hostile sexists, they should be... Um, Oh, lean more towards othering, you know, be find that acceptable. Yes. People who are high in the score exhibit authoritarian behaviors. So the questions are predictive of authoritarian behavior, but they're not deterministic. Right. Actually, I think I need to correct something because I, I, I think I only got one on the authoritarian. Oh, you're a 0.25 you know. then. You're, yeah, you're 0.25. It was the last very one. Very unlikely I think. to have yeah. any authoritarian attitudes. <laughs> well, anything having to do with curiosity or independence, I'm kind of a sucker for. Yeah. And, you know, so it's that without those those weren't difficult. But so that kind of puts things in 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 focus. And um you cover some of this ground in the in the book on fascism. But uh before we get to that, I think it'd be interesting to discuss the most recent, you know, findings that you present, and you sent me a paper called "Is Democracy Destroying Itself?" 
from the German Marshall Fund. These were based on uh, recent research, that uh, survey research that you've done. The quote itself comes from John Quincy Adams, our sixth president of the United States. And uh, he had, as you say, grave doubts about the durability of American democracy, which I think is worth mentioning just because people shouldn't be under the impression that all of a sudden, you know, we have questions about the durability <laughs> of American democracy. This right. This is this is everyone's it, it, had questions. <laughs> all the, the founders. founders had questions. <laughs> the Federalist Papers are full of concerns about, you know, majority factions destroying uh, Dirk ben Madison, Franklin, right? a Republican, or, if we can keep it, or if the, you can keep it, I yes. think it's the, and demagogues yeah. were yeah. central. I think they were convinced that they would be demagogues, and so how do we deal with that? We have checks and balances. So let's just clear that up, right? We're not yeah. talking about <laughs> fresh, fresh ground. Um, yeah, not not at all. I mean, this this is a an ongoing uh, concern, and. John Quincy Adams, 1814, wrote, uh, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. A very, Ouch. you know, very yeah. positive statement about democracy. Yeah, right. And that's but that the, was from observation. Yeah. Well, and he was a diplomat, and he, he spent time in Russia, and he was the son of the second uh, president, in fact. Right, right. So he yeah. knew what he was talking about. He sure did, and he watched his uh, uh, his father and the Federalists uh, launch the seditious the Sedition Act of 1798 and try to clamp down on uh, the free press. So he'd seen yes. where democracy could go. Yep. And in the survey now that we're talking about, recent survey, uh, so one basic finding is that just 41% of Americans 18 years of age and older today are consistent supporters of democracy. The rest, a 59% majority, are inconsistent supporters of democracy. And then you zoom in on where I think uh, it might be profitable to go, that only one in four Americans between 18 and 39 years old, so from the start of voting age up to 39, is a consistent supporter of democracy, a full 16 percentage points below the mean support score for all citizens of voting age. So we have this sort of youth problem, and maybe we can explore that in some depth. What is going on there? How does that break down? Yeah, I mean, the same way we can measure authoritarianism, we can measure consistent support for democracy, and there are five questions to use. You know, they're used by different people around the world. Uh, the World Values Survey includes three of them on their global surveys every five years. And so I've taken the five questions and we applied them to the United States through grant from the Freudenberg Foundation and German Marshall Fund, mm -hmm. uh, but also all across Europe. And what we found consistently is that young people, 18 to 29 and also uh, uh, 30 to 39, are much less likely to strongly, consistently support democracy than uh, older folks, except to generarians in the United States, 65% of them are consistent supporters of democracy. And what are you, so, what is the test of it? So is it, is it a belief in the voting process? Is that now there, there are five questions. One is very simple. Uh, uh, is democracy a preferable form of government or not? Or are there another form of government that you would think would work better? Mm -hmm. uh, another one is a strong leader question. 
Um, do you agree or disagree that it's important to have, it's in, that we need to have a strong leader who uh, doesn't pay attention, this is important, to Congress or the courts and gets things done? So mm -hmm. if you're for the strong leader, you're not a consistent supporter of democracy. Um, and so in the United States, 41% strong supporters of democracy. Uh, but when we look at young people, it's just, you know, 25% uh, average. Um, and that's very concerning because as you and I move on to the, our great reward, wherever uh, that might yes, be. Yes, I'll be getting my first uh, Social Security <laughs> check in, uh, in March as a, as a full, you know, full-fledged, you know, recipient. You. Yes, it's a good, uh, we like that. Um, but uh, yes, uh, different as generation. That, as we age we're replaced by younger people who don't have such uh, an affinity or an affiliation with democracy, which opens the door larger. Uh, it, it makes the, it makes the possibility of a demagogue uh, more likely. Yes. Yes. I think we yeah, can we see, see that. This not just in the United States, yeah. but it is across Europe. In Germany, the number is, 38% average. Mm -hmm. And with young people, it's 19%, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you see groups like the Alternative for Deutschland, which is a, a neo-Nazi party, yeah. uh, growing so quickly in uh, support in Germany. Well, is there a kind of uber explanation that you have since we're dealing with societies that uh, are on both sides of the Atlantic uh, that you know can help us understand, in particular, the youth factor yeah in the united states we have the quantitative which we've talked about we also have qualitative data uh which means we've talked to young people about focus it focus groups yeah yeah focus groups qualitative boards individual in uh interviews and the problem in the united states is uh it it, it has several uh, uh parts to it but the main problem is democracy has been flattened to the idea of democracy is voting. That's it. You vote, you participate, that's it. As opposed to de Tocqueville's civic participation involvement. And the problem with the vote is uh, young people feel, and, and I think many others do, that their vote isn't listened to, voting is a sham, and the system is not responsive to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so their support of institutions is falling uh, they think that democracy is just about voting, and they don't link democracy directly to freedom, mm. uh, which is very. Uh, and I, here I got some quotes. I'll read them to you, just from these focus groups. Like, yeah, this so, is with African American in, men. In, in okay, in America, in America, democracy is. We ask democracy is fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Democracy is lies, more lies, a broken system that doesn't work doesn't represent everyone, needs to be fixed. The system was just not built for us. That's African-American men, uh, uh, white women. Democracy is government. I was thinking on the lines of the whole point of government. I thought it was to make sure the country runs smoothly, but I don't necessarily care if it's democratic. I want to have the country run smoothly. So I mean, just kind are... of results, results oriented. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, black women. They tell us we have these rights like voting, but our vote doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Um, so it's been flattened to voting. And also the other part of it is they don't see the system 
uh, delivering results they want? Uh, why can't we fix climate change? Uh, why has uh, the Supreme Court took away our right to choose? Why? Most people want it. Uh, guns. When there are no gun controls, most people want it. Democracy is not delivering for us. And then so, the final thing is, you know, we can all buy or do just about anything we want online with our little phone, right? And we get it immediately. I ordered uh, some treats for my cats <laughs> from Amazon. They came four hours later. Yes, it's incredible. And so we're used to this things happening quickly. And democracy is the exact opposite of that. Democracy yes. is slow. Well, it's, um, so it doesn't it, sound like... To be a, a bit of a devil's advocate, it does not sound like a necessarily irrational response to say that the democracy is not working because on the one hand, as you point out, it's so efficient when you're in the consumer marketplace. And on the other uh, dimension, it's really not, and not only not efficient, but not delivering really satisfactory results of any kind. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't yeah. people react that way? Yeah, because but government's not a market and government's not a corporation. Government is us trying to to resolve political differences in a way that isn't uh, that isn't violent. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's going to take time. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off well how about money though what about is there is that something that comes up in focus yeah. groups example that there's a kind of pervasive and corrupt factor here involving money and big money in politics is that play into the cynicism that we see in the united states for sure uh that plays into it um in europe i don't have the qualitative uh information yet to tell you exactly in Europe what it is, but in the United States, it's certainly that the system uh, has been corrupted uh, by money and that money matters more than people. It does level of education matter in these surveys in terms of the propensity to see democracy as not working? Well, you know, it's really interesting uh, because educational attainment is somewhat predictive, but not... Uh, it depends on the modeling that you do statistically. Yeah, not as much as you might think. I mean, not as much as you might that, think. You know, Jefferson believed that education was essentially the solution for the good society. Yeah, and and I think you know, for us, what we need to solve this, we have to make democracy relevant, uh, but show that linkage between freedom and democracy. That these freedoms we have are hard fought. Well, the uh, freedom, I wanted to get to yeah. that because your your survey underlies that if we talk about freedom, that's a different thing. It's a different value in the respondents to your survey. And I imagine in the 
focus groups are underscoring a pretty strong belief in what they view as freedom, which of course, as we know, is can be kind of a complicated concept. There are positive and, and negative types of, of freedom. Oh, yeah, they want freedom. But, you know, freedom gets defined in different ways. Yeah, freedom from by, restraint or freedom yeah, to, for, to do their own thing. Be able to do, I mean, with some of the people who are low on the uh, consistency of support for democracy scale, right? So they're mm -hmm. let's say they're in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're white uh, and they're male. They say freedom is to do whatever in heck I want, whenever in heck I want. Okay. Uh, whereas- Don't tread go, on me kind of a- yeah. And, and if you go, but then there's also the civic responsibility uh, side. There's some who will say freedom is part of freedom are rights that I enjoy and we protect them by working together for them. And then with African-American men, it was really clear freedom is just the right to exist, basically yeah. to have laws that protect me from the system yeah, get and I stomped feel free. on in an yeah. arbitrary way by the cops right. and that kind of thing yeah freedom is and that's and they're scared of losing that freedom uh, sure. well, who yeah wouldn't be? that's yeah. the you know it uh i think it's interesting just to the economic side in europe there's a lot of work that's been done on democracy um uh, and young people not being for democracy, but they go in with big blinders on thinking it's all income. So it's those lower income people who aren't well educated there. We have to teach them about democracy. It's just wrong. Mm. It goes across the scale. Uh, it's starting with a bias when you look at it. It's upper income, middle income, lower income. It's really the difference, uh, a commitment to community, commitment to uh, government and working together, that's yeah. the key. Well, community, let's, we will get into that. I know yeah, that's yeah. important. But with freedom, yeah, I mean, I've always thought of freedom as a kind of our Lockean, in America, our sort of Lockean inheritance. I mean, as Jefferson casting it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I know that Locke himself, I think he said property and not happiness, but life, liberty, all that stuff. And so that to me is is sort of in the mainstream of the American experience. And it sounds like that's actually holding up pretty pretty well in some right. in some sense, as opposed well, to the democracy uh, dimension. And, and what people learn, those who get civic education, because obviously civic education is not uh, uh, is not really doesn't happen in many schools at this point. It just doesn't. But the civic it's education- It's not taught as a class? Is that what you're it's saying? It's not taught, uh, or it's just an afterthought. It's secondary. Uh, I see. And in school after school, it's a real problem. But when it is taught, it's all about the plumbing of the Constitution, like the first seven articles, Franklin's part of the Constitution, and less about Madison's part, which was added- uh, uh, after the ratification, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, um, yeah. So, and, and people learn about it and then forget about it. And there's checks and balances, but I don't know what they are. I'm not sure what the Supreme Court does, except they're an anti-majoritarian institution, they would say right now. They wouldn't yeah. use those words, but that would be their thought. I see. Well, that's a little bit frightening, but on the education, but I guess not surprising. So community, uh, 
I want to come back to, which you describe uh, like freedom is also a value-laden, emotionally packed term for most inconsistent supporters of democracy. Community is place, family, togetherness, connection, nostalgia, safety, responsibility, and hope all rolled into one. So community is popular, right? Community, and you know, what's interesting within the word community is the word unity, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, a community is really important to these younger uh, Americans who are inconsistent supporters of democracy, and they want to participate in it. They want to volunteer in it. They want to help it. They want to work in it. They find it difficult to do, uh, difficult to find on-ramps to get them involved. Uh, but to me, one way we turn the corner on this and help pe people understand how important democracy is, isn't by lecturing to them, it's showing it in action through community service and what that does. And right. that by working together, we create a better uh, society, a better community, a stronger community, a community that can be democratic and where people can talk and have differences and not uh, fight each other. And it seems a bit like a paradox because the lack of connection or interest in democracy might suggest a certain kind of cynicism, which is at odds with a desire uh, for community and for volunteering and taking all those actions. I mean, or how does that paradox get resolved? Well, there's some people, you know, lower on the, uh, the democracy scale, there are people who like don't want to be part of it. Uh, it is, I don't care, but it's the people who can be reached uh, who aren't, uh, who are uh, stronger supporters of democracy. They aren't consistent supporters of democracy, but they aren't saying no to all five questions. Those people are the ones who are more likely to care about community. And community can be good or bad in some ways. If it's traditionalism and if it's unity that leads to uniformity, uh, that can be very, um, that can lead us into an authoritarian path. If it's mm -hmm. unity that's, that includes diversity, recognizes that we're a diverse society and celebrates that, that's the path to a more equal uh, right. and just society. So well, you have to be careful about it, but it's the, there are people like, we call them four or fives. That means they were inconsistent and supported democracy in four questions or five out of five questions. Right. Like they are not, they're not in our, in our uh, target mix. And yeah. really when you look at them, if you do uh, analysis, they're authoritarians. Oh, okay. They want order. They want uh, obedience to authority. They want a traditionalism. Uh, and if you aren't within their traditionalism, they want you out of this country, out of power, uh -oh. uh, and they want nostalgia, 1950s uh, communities that uh, no longer exist anywhere. Yeah, well, nostalgia is usually a, a desire for a past that never was anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all another, yes. we could discuss that topic. But actually, so let's pivot and make this a little bit less abstract and not to put you on the spot, but we have had some uh, election uh, results. We're in the midst of some presidential uh, primaries, two to be precise. On the Republican side, we've seen you know Donald Trump uh, for the third time running uh, uh, for president uh, performing 
well among his base, his core voters. Um, if we can extrapolate, is that in some way a signifier uh, on this authoritarian dimension? Is that what Trump or his followers uh, are embodying? Yeah, first, let's start with this is not normal, what we're seeing. Uh, uh, it well, is normal always scares me, though, compared to what? I mean, that compared word. Compared to... <laughs> um, uh, it's outside the bounds of the guardrails of democracy. <laughs> that's what. That's what is what I mean by normal? You mean Trump is, or the the MAGA movement, or what? Yes, what, what, the MAGA movement. And uh, what has happened is it, it Trump started this in 2015. Mm -hmm. He's activated authoritarianism uh, within the, uh, which was a latent. Uh, uh, characteristic within the Republican Party. Yeah, so from latent to activated. Okay. Yeah, and it's there's a whole uh, great book on this called the authoritarian dynamic, and authoritarianism is always there. The question is, is it turned on right. or not? Who wrote that is, book? That you, if you're referring to the book, who oh, wrote Ken, that book? Karen Stenner. Okay, just to uh, get that authoritarian in. dynamic, brilliant book, and Trump turned that on, and he turned it on through fear. Uh, be afraid, be very afraid. It's the paranoid style of politics that Hofstadter talked about. Yes, I wanted to get into that as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but and so he, yes. he has turned that on. Mm -hmm. um, and Like a then, light switch almost. Yeah, it's a switch. And I mean, it took him a while to do it, but he turned it on and it's reshaped the Republican Party. Remember in 2020, the Republican Party had no platform. Right. They didn't have a platform. They didn't it was see just a need whatever for a Trump platform. Said. Yeah. Right. Um, they don't have one this time around either. They don't have this time one around. But what they really have is fear, fear mongering, and identification of the other. Mm -hmm. And the other is coming to take us away, to take our rights away, to take our traditions away, to the, you know, I won't use the language he was using because it's just so awful. But uh, well, it's out there. I think, you know, vermin, he's referred to vermin. Vermin, I mean, he's using Hitler uh, language um, and fascist language. So he has stoked this authoritarianism. And the problem is the elites within the Republican Party, which, which means like members of Congress and others, could have said no, could have fought him. Uh, and actually, after Jan 6, they did for two days, but they've totally rolled over at this point and they're you know enablers psychophants followers of trumpism so they're feeding into uh the entire um, right and that's Trump we... chaos mm -hmm. uh, and a lot uh, the hardest thing to see is evangelicals <laughs> here's uh you know you look at at the eugene carroll uh and um um you know, that he was, he's been, uh, uh, the legal system has said that he uh, raped her. And here you still have uh, I don't think it was, I mean, support. to be technical, I don't think they, I don't think the conclusion was rape, but but there was a, a different uh, term applied. Actually, then. the judge came back and said, that's oh. the equivalent of rape. Um, okay, if he did that, I stand corrected. Yeah, is, not in the initial verdict anyway. Not in the issue, but the, when he came back as, uh, okay, so got, let's not get into the weeds on that. But yes, yeah, he's yeah. Had, Trump has been confronted by the uh, is being confronted by the legal system, and we see this authoritarian uh, 
wave Strain. as you describe activated. But well, let me just give you though at least a little bit of a of a counter narrative because I know that this is something you've thought about as well, which is that uh, there's a populist wave. And uh, a lot of authors have spoken to this. My friend and uh, author John Judas wrote a book called The Populist Explosion, which was coinciding with Trump's rise initially that got a lot of attention. And I think a lot of people, both political scientists and journalists, have accepted this idea that populism is, in fact, the main dispositional, dispositional driver behind the rise of illiberal politics. But you face that squarely, that question in your book on, on fascism, and argue otherwise. Yeah, there are ways to test for populism, too, in surveys. Um, and we've done that. Uh, and what you find is there is some overlap between authoritarians and populists, but not a lot. And one thing with populists- well, how, how do you test, actually? I wasn't familiar oh, with that. It's a five, six question battery. Like, like uh, uh, what's, a, what's a question? Uh, oh, the questions are, um, they're agree, disagree. Uh, one, for example, is um, when uh, someone gets elected to parliament or Congress, uh, they quickly forget the people who sent them there. Agree, disagree. Um, mm -hmm. that the people uh, and the leaders are, uh, the, the leaders are much different than the people in the way they view the world, agree, disagree. There are, you know, six uh, questions. Well, the full battery is seven. You can do it with five. Okay. But, but, but when you, you do that and you mm -hmm. look, you realize that populists are much more likely to support democracy in democratic forms mm -hmm. than authoritarians. Authoritarians aren't. And this is true in the United States. It's true across Europe. So that's, so a, that's a really core distinction. Core distinction. Go to Poland. And we just had the big election in Poland. The PIS, the Law and Justice Party, which is for neither law nor justice, mm. is supported by authoritarians. Mm -hmm. They don't care about democracy. The civic Platform, which stands for democracy, is uh, supported by populists. Same thing in Italy. Uh, populists uh, supported the Five Star Movement. They don't did not support uh, Maloney. Maloney was supported by authoritarians. And uh, in and you see this in country after country. Germany is the same thing. Christian Democratic Party will have populists within it. The Greens definitely have populists in it. They don't have authoritarians. The authoritarians are the neo-Nazi party. Uh, alternative for Deutschland. Well, in America, then, is is Trump supported by authoritarians, but not by populists in these terms? He is more Authoritarians are more likely to support him than populists are. Mm -hmm. In the end, so much of this has gotten washed out just by party ID, too, at this point. Yeah. Um, but if you're a populist, you're much more likely to be supportive of democracy and you know, less likely to be supportive of yeah. Trump. I guess I've always, maybe my understanding of populism is overly informed by our economic history, but I always associate the populace with the movements of the 19th, late 19th century as uh, a reaction to concentration of, of capital in Wealth. railroads and Democratic Farm Labor Party. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, the desire yeah, yeah. to to really address that in a very comprehensive and, and substantive way. So I don't 
always identify today things that are called populism with that kind of populism. I mean, Trump is, well, he's calling for tariffs, which might be sort of populistic, but he's not, you know, that full kind of gamut of populist solutions is not something he's embracing. And when he was president for the first time, he embraced the Republican standard uh, menu of corporate uh, and, and individual tax cuts. Exactly. Not a populist measure. Not a populist place to go. <laughs> Not a Tom Watson populist. Yeah, no, more know, of an control and rich people place. Kind of, yeah, more <laughs> oligarchical. That's a whole yes. other word. So. <laughs> Anyway, we don't have to establish, this is not so much about populism, but I just thought it was an important distinction to make. And and But I think one of the charms of your book now, if we could talk about on fascism, is that you revisit these lessons or you describe these, what you call 12 lessons from American history. Uh, lesson one is about American enlightened authoritarian Lincoln versus Douglas. And we can talk about that, but I actually found myself attached a bit to a lesson two, uh, fomenting fear in the paranoid style. And there we get the historian Richard Hofstetter who coined this phrase, I guess I I, I guess he did. I mean, he wrote the essay yeah, yeah, called I, The Paranoid. I think he did, yes. Well, I'm not sure that, right. The paranoid style, I think people have tried to describe in, in various ways, but he certainly gave life to it in his essays, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And by my recollection, at that time, he was talking a lot about, you know, there was sort of Goldwater, there was a lot going on on the right wing, the Birchers and all of that. And he identified that- Well, he was that, going back as far as- uh, The know-nothings. Uh, Anti-Catholic, nativist, yeah. know-nothings, know you name it. He was going way yeah. back into- yeah. uh, Yes, I meant that he was writing when he, I think it was published in the early 60s. And it, at that, there you go. So at that time, that right. might have been a, a kind of a prompt for him. And then he returned to this style in politics, which you obviously think has great currency. Oh, yeah. I think Hofstadter had it, uh, you know, and he, he said there's sort of like four steps to this paranoid style. And to me, the paranoid style is just activating authoritarianisms and that uh, authoritarians, and that's where it comes together. But mm -hmm. you know, first, uh, the paranoid style politicians conjure another, and so you know, think of Trump coming down the escalator. The first thing he did was start, and that first speech was pointing out others, uh, those you know, dirty immigrants from yeah. wherever. Some of them are uh, what, rapists, criminals, rapists, and, and yeah, some may and, be good people. Yeah, some might be good people. Yeah, his, you know? his, the Trumpian flourish to that. Yeah, so the, be, the second step is that you describe the others different from mainstream Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they're, you just think through what we've seen the last two years, you've seen that a lot. Then the paranoid leader, the third stage, you stoke that there's a hidden conspiracy, the deep state, you name it, all the yes. conspiracies that we've heard. Now it's the Justice Department is conspiring against Trump to hold him accountable with the rule of law. And then finally, well, and, this and is I want to mention that the local D DA in the Fulton County uh, in the Atlanta area is targeted by Trump. This is a black woman for being a racist. So right. he kind of flips these categories. I think he's also saying Joe Biden is is the real fascist in this race. Yeah, he flips everything on its. Well, and then the final stage, which we're in, this mm -hmm. is like the as uh, final Hofstetter does not would sound say, good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's 
the, the fear is manipulated to rationalize actions that violate fundamental values, norms, laws, constitutional protections. And that's Trump saying, I'll be a dictator from day one. Right. Well, that's Trump saying well, on day one, on day one, uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, he ignores the Constitution. He ignores laws. Um, so to take that, though, beyond Trump, because I think it's important to understand we talk sure. about the MAGA movement. But, you know, as somebody who comes from a background in journalism and, you know, writing, you know, nonfiction, I want to emphasize, uh, I've been just kind of amazed by how thoroughly the media uh, in the conservative media ecosystem has been co-opted right. in this. And I don't know whether it's like for Fox News, it's largely a commercial phenomenon because they simply can make money out of this kind of coverage or whether it's something different. But Trump and MAGA would not really be able to penetrate so deeply, I don't think, if it was their message was not so well a amplified by this conservative media ecosystem. Yeah, it's amplified by uh, broadcast, cable, and online. Um, and the ecosystem feeds on it and makes money on it. So um, they make money uh, spewing falsehoods. And, you know, it goes back to Kellyanne Conway. Uh, the day after Trump was inaugurated and there were discussions of the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Yes. And, you know, he was just making up stuff. I and know. she said, well... We have uh, our facts and their alternative facts, and yeah. alternative facts are real. I remember Chuck Todd just looking at her and saying, no, alternative facts are lies. <laughs> there are no such yeah. thing. There are facts. <laughs> uh, well, that takes us into your lesson three, All Lies Matter, the father uh, yes. of hate radio and deep state conspiracy. So again, this is in the department of how there's really nothing new under the sun. So talk to us a little bit about Father Coughlin. Well, you know, it, it goes back to an earlier comment you made, which, you know, when the Constitution was formed, the founders said they're going to be demagogues out there, but we can devise a system yes. to try to control that. Yeah, demagogues so first, are internal. And the founders, just to be clear, they were studying all the way back to, you know, ancient Greece. And, you know, they were very aware of what had happened before this exercise in republic formation. Exactly. None of this is new. They and they saw it. So first they had the Senate. Okay, that was supposed to be a bulwark. Mm -hmm. And second, just the scope of the Republic. I think it's Federalist 11 or Federalist 10 talks about how the scope of the Republic would be a bulwark against uh, demagogues. Yeah. Well, obviously that has changed. Well, uh, mass media can help to change, and, to, to shrink the country. Yeah. And the first time when it really the country shrank quickly was the uh, uh, start of network radio. Mm -hmm. And Father Coughlin, which was, uh, who was when, known as when, the father of hate yeah, radio. Yeah, and when did, what was his period? In 1926 is when he began the Radio League of the Little Flower and oh, its good. golden hour. There you go. And uh, That sounds father sweet. Coughlin, yeah, isn't it? And he started out with one uh, radio station, uh, and then expanded to a whole network. And he got to the point where in the early 30s, he was reaching 40 million Americans wow. when there were about 140 million. Yeah. So think of 40 million Americans each hour that he was on. I think it was on every uh, weekend for one hour. Well, that's incredible. I mean, the 140 million Americans includes uh, children as well. Right. So we must be talking about one out of every three or even better adults. 
Right. And when you look at it versus like take Sean Hannity's radio uh, show, Father Coughlin's like was 10 times the size yes. of his reach. Tucker Carlson, and, when he had a show too, when people I thought endlessly gave attention to it, if you looked at the numbers, it, you know, a thimbleful in terms of most Americans are, in fact, are, are watching Netflix or their media diet is not of just, you know, a Sean Hannity or anyone, you know, on the left that you might think of as doing the same thing. Yeah, so that's one difference, right? Father Coughlin was truly a, a mass media figure. Well, and he made money on this also. So, you know, he's a he was a Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. uh, he turned this into a profit-making venture. Uh, uh, he was also an anti-Semite mm -hmm. um, and uh, became a, a supporter of fascism. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know, depression, right? Uh, and post-depression and was communicating that and founded an organization called the Christian Front, uh, mm -hmm. which became known for beating up Jews and proclaimed themselves Father Coughlin's brown shirts. Mm, nice. um, and yeah. he became a real thorn in the side of FDR. Um, and there was one time, uh, uh, it was right after Kristallnacht in Germany and Austria, mm -hmm. uh, where he went on the radio and blamed the Jews for Kristallnacht. Oh boy. And the, the, the feeling was at that point, or the, 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 the data was that about 22% of Americans heard Coughlin's broadcast, of all Americans, mm. heard his broadcast around that time. Mm. Um, and uh, so he was the father of hate radio, the father of the conspiracy uh, radio. Um, in 1939, uh, a new pope was installed, and the new pope basically said, no more Father Coughlin. Uh -huh. uh, and so that's how he disappeared uh, out I, so, of the radio. So authoritarians sometimes get taken <laughs> care of by, let's yeah. say, authority, authority figures. Right. That And that's what happened. There was a gatekeeper named Pope Pius Twelfth, and he reigned in Coughlin. Uh, and unplugged his uh, megaphone. And I think, you know, because then obviously we were engaged in a war and uh, the question was, whose side are you on? Yeah, well, let's, I wanted to do one more uh, lesson seven, the driving out, Chinese persecution, exclusion and massacre. And here our touchstone is our never ending debate about the border, particularly the Southern uh, border now, which which I think it has to be said. I mean, the, the numbers certainly suggest that there are many, many millions of quote unquote in encounters. Now, I mean, it's a real issue. So it's activated our politics in a very large way. And you see here, see ref, uh, resonance back to the, uh, the Chinese exclusion. Oh, yeah, How the is Chinese that relevant? Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, but it's not just, it's it's more- uh, the driving uh, out, I think is your term. Yeah, driving out, but the, the act in Congress was the Exclusion Act, mm -hmm. but but it's even more recent than that. I point you to the other chapter on, on the Japanese internment. Yes, yes. Um, and so there's always another, uh, uh, and when you target them, uh, they become the people you try to exclude or intern or in some ways 
uh, use to build your political movement. And, you know, here's a uh, just a little poll data I pulled. I was working on the Reuters uh, poll that was just uh, came out. It was 5,000 sample in the United States. Um, it was with Ipsos and Reuters. 69% mm -hmm. of Republicans now say illegal immigrants should be arrested and put in detention camps, in detention camps, while awaiting deportation hearings. Mm. Arrest and, and detention. Yes. While awaiting deportation hearings. That's 11 million people. Mm -hmm. who would be arrested and put in detention camps. Now, if you go back to 1942, it was only 48% said Japanese Americans should be should stay uh, in the internment camps uh, and uh, not be allowed home. This was during a world war. <laughs> so, yes. So you can see you've got 21% more, and that is authoritarian activation. So we have the, the Chinese exclusion uh, you know, Japanese internment. We all know what happened to Irish Americans, Italian Americans. You know, there's always another. There's always someone that gets targeted by demagogues to be the other, and they use that politically to build power. I think it's um, also important to point out, though, as you do in your your chapter on the Japanese uh, internment, you write that influential journalists like Walter Lippmann. Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, fed these conspiratorial claims, as you call them, Lippmann warning that, quote, the Pacific coast uh, is in imminent danger of a combined attack from within and without, and that the absence of the attack so far, according to Lippmann, was simply a sign that the blow, you know, that will come is well organized and has been held back. So just to remind, I mean, Walter Lippmann was one of the preeminent journalists of his age. I mean, I think most people would describe him as a figure of you know, enlightenment and, and reason. I mean, he spent much of his time trying to demystify, you know, public opinion. So of all people, which I guess points to a sense, you know, that maybe none of us is completely uh, lacking in susceptibility here. And we can think of after 911 in America, we could think of all of the people that, you know, the polls on being ready to support uh, torture, basically, in order to save the country. Well, and, and also who is president? At that time, a Democrat, FDR. At that uh, time, yes. And and who apologized? Who is the first the president who apologized to the Japanese? Was it Obama? I think was it? No, it was Reagan. Oh, it was was August tenth, nineteen eighty eight. Okay, I, okay, I take you on that absolutely. And he, uh, uh, and that was it. Was a it, it, it's worth watching. The former this. governor of California. It should be yeah. known. Well, and also he had, he had a long history uh, on this that he when he was a, an actor right after the war, he uh, went around uh, and there was a ceremony where he um, uh, gave, uh, I think it was a bronze star to a Japanese American who fought in the for the United States in the Pacific. Theater. Oh, yes, I think. And, uh... and, and it's just and he brought that into the uh, August 10th, 1988 uh, ceremony and linked his involvement, I think it was in 47 to 88 and talked about how we have to have a society that is just and where people are equal. And so it's not just, you know, that's 
the Republican, yes. <laughs> at least in my generation, Ronald Reagan. And he was the one who apologized uh, for what we had done uh, to the Japanese Americans during the war. I thought it was it. It's you can see it. Uh, you just put in YouTube Ronald Reagan, you yeah. know, Japanese internment. It, it's it brought tears to my eyes just to watch that. Well, the passage of time, of course, is is passage. always well, and, and also a political figure realizing that that was what was required morally. Um, that we needed to recognize the history and apologize for the history. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a fine sentiment and i mean that sincerely that yeah. somebody like a president would do that and it just strikes me of my generation that uh the coarseness of so much of our politics which oh. is in some way connected to this is you know you sort of sound like a little old lady when you talk about these things but it's dispiriting it is it is i always my i always think about my mom who fought in world war ii Mm -hmm. She was a, a woman's army corps captain, so one of the highest uh, uh, women uh, serving, was in uh, London during the buzz bombs, first people into Paris after the Nazis left. She always talked about people, snipers shooting at them and the general staff. And I think she would be turning in her grave right now. She is turning in her grave with yeah. this. Um, and we just, we have to get together and uh remember what this country is about uh that's our challenge uh that we all face yes well i hear you on that and i think that's a good note for us to uh conclude as well i want to thank you for your thoughts and your insights i want to encourage people to follow matthew and to read his uh book on fascism, 12 lessons from American history, because these lessons are not going to go away and are always, <laughs> it's always good to be reminded of, of, of them. So thanks everyone. I'm Paul Starobin. You've been listening to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.